Pastor George here. I wanted to take a second and thank you for checking out our online messages. Our prayer is that this resource will challenge you, encourage you, and empower you as you uh, dig deeper in your relationship with Christ. But in no way will it replace God's plan for your active involvement in a local church. I do want to take a second and ask you to uh, prayerfully consider as you participate and listen to this resource, partnering with Revive as we uh, pursue our mission of seeing people live their fullest life in Christ. You can do this by going online to revivechurchga.com backslash give and making a one-time donation or setting up a recurring gift. It's through the generosity of others that we're able to provide um, a resource like this one. With that being said, uh, I do want to thank you again, and here is today's message. Say by uh, Drew McIntyre that looked at the life of Zamperini. Um, if you've seen the movie Unbroken, or he has Zamperini actually has a book called Don't Give Up, which the movie is based on, but you, you know his story. Um, it's pretty remarkable. He was an Olympic caliber runner. That was his passion. His, his goal was to run and compete in the Olympics. That career was cut short by World War II. Uh, in the war, his plane was actually shot down and crashed into the ocean. Um, he and two other uh, men from the plane survived the crash and actually floated at sea. Eventually, one of those other men did pass away at sea, so it was two of them that survived this crash. And they floated at sea for six weeks, almost two months they floated out at sea, surviving on providential, miraculous rainfall that would fall at the right time and they could capture and have that for water. They uh, ate fish, caught fish and birds, and were able to survive six weeks at sea. Eventually, they did float in and make it to shore, upon which the troubles really began. The worst part of this journey began after surviving the plane crash. They were captured, Zapparini was captured, uh, became a prisoner of war, captured by the Japanese. And while he was a prisoner of war, he was tortured and faced unbearable, unimaginable actions. There was one guard in particular that he calls, that was known as the bird, that actually took sadistic pleasure in continuing to target Zamperini for physical and psychological torture. There was random beatings and deprivation, and this all took an incredible toll on Zamperini. But he endured until the war ended, when he was finally able to return home, where he returned home a hero. He got married to his sweetheart. They began to build a life together. But the actions and the things that happened to Zamperini in the war changed him for the worse. He was a broken man. And he was not well. His body and mind had taken a toll, and he had not had a chance to heal from it. 
He had uh, he was haunted by nightmares about the bird. <laughs> he failed to hold down a job. He couldn't support his family. And to cope with this, he, would drink, he drank heavily and did all kinds of things that caused him harm and his family harm, just trying to survive post-war. He says this in his book, Don't Give Up. I had always known that I had come home from the war with a problem, but, le- but I had never been willing to ask for help from anyone. Zamperini faced all kinds of issues, and he knew he had issues, but he didn't feel like he had power or a voice to stand up to those problems and find help. His wife, being desperate for some kind of relief from this torment, convinced him to go hear a young preacher named Billy Graham. You may have heard of him, right? And so they actually, they go to one of these, there in Southern California, Billy Graham's, his ministry is really taking off. They go to one of these rallies, and they actually end up going two separate nights. Because on the first night, they left early because Zamperini was enraged by the sermon. So angry, they got up and left. His wife, who was persistent, bless her soul, convinced him to go a second night. And while they're there the second night, the uh, Graham's message seemed to be directed right at Zamperini. As Zamperini describes it in his book, he says that he got up with his wife intending to leave again. But when I reached the aisle, I could no longer resist. I just let my instinct take over. And instead of leaving, I went forward. Turning toward the stage was a crucial moment. It was the fork in the road. At that stage, I fell to my knees, emotionally overcome, and I asked for forgiveness and invited Christ into my heart. That moment, he says, left him feeling energized and, in his words, supremely alive. He returned home, realized that for the first time in years, he did not have a desire to drink. He poured every drop of alcohol in the house down the drain. He even threw away his cigarettes. But most incredibly, for the first time since the war, he had a peaceful night's sleep. It was the first time in years that he had been able to experience that. And he woke, he said, he woke feeling cleansed. For the first time in five years, the bird was not in his dreams. As Zamperini tells the story of his own conversion, recovering agency was the most crucial, one of the most crucial parts of his story. He was able to get his voice back. For years, he had been drifting. This is his words. He had been drifting. He was unable to hold a job, drinking to cope with his fears and anxieties. And he was haunted by his ordeal as a prisoner of war and the loss of his running career. He said he was not an active participant in his own life. And as he crossed the threshold of surrender, he realized that he was acting. He was choosing to follow Christ. He was choosing to lean on Christ for redemption and recovery. Christ had given him his voice back. Christ had given him power, strength, and dignity. And that voice, that agency led to radical healing. Today we look at a passage in Hebrews that has done that exact thing in my life. There's times where I have struggled to really overcome sin, 
times where I felt like I was doing everything I had been taught to do, everything I understood in Scripture. I was checking all the boxes. I, I had groups. And what, we weren't like an accountability group, but I had a group of peers and friends that held me accountable. When we saw each other sinning or falling short, we'd call each other out, okay? A lot of times we'd call each other out in pride, and there'd be lots of arguments, but we had this relationship with this group of guys where we would call each other out. And so I knew that if I had this sin, I needed to repent. I would repent, confess to God, and I would go to them and I would confess. I was doing everything I was supposed to do, but I just could not find freedom from that sin. Then I had one friend who I loved and trusted, so there was a relationship there that I would confess to. And one day he called me out. (laughs) He said that I was acting powerless, and I told him that I felt powerless. And he followed with the, bro, it's not your power that you live by. And then he dropped this passage from memory. And more than once, I've had to quote this passage. I've had to write it down and put it in a book, put it on the mirror, memorize it, do what I could. And because there would be times where I was struggling with sin, and this passage would give me my voice back. It would give me the agency, the power, and the strength, and the dignity to overcome the sin that seemed to have a chokehold on me. I hope that as we unpack this message today and we get to the end, that it will have that same power and carry that same weight for you. When you face temptation or you face difficulty or you face low moments in life where you feel like your voice has been taken from you, I hope that you can go to this passage and receive that dignity and that power to overcome. So let's pray before we dive into the scripture. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would lift us up this morning. I pray that you would empower us and encourage us as we dive into your word, that you would strengthen us and give us our dignity and our voice so that we may overcome in your strength. It's in Jesus' name we pray. We're in Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to look at verses, I'm going to read 14 through 16, but we're really going to kind of cover uh, 4.14 through 5.10 as we unpack it. Verse 14 says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, that is Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in a time of need. The big thing we see here is this emphasis on our high priest. Jesus is called the high priest, but what does that even mean? A lot of times people look at the Old uh, Testament and they look at their sacrificial system and they're wondering why this has to be, why this thing came to be. And in the Old Testament, we see the high priest. So so one of the things that uh, there there can be a uh, trend nowadays to try to separate the Old Testament from the New Testament. But let me just say that you cannot understand Jesus in his fullness if you do not have an understanding of the Old Testament. All right, I've talked about the book, The Epic of Eden, before. I encourage you, read it, take notes, write a book report, read it again, and then give it to a friend. Okay, this, that book will help you unpack and understand the Old Testament. But one of the things in the Old Testament that helps us understand Jesus is this person who is called a high priest. Now, we don't have time for me to unpack all the details of the sacrificial system and what the high priest did, but let me give an overview, okay? The high priest kind of had two jobs, had kind of this dual role. The high priest was appointed by God, and he was a bridge between people and God. 
So his two jobs kind of had this role. The first one, on the first hand, it was like this uh, liturgical ceremonial role, right? That he offered gifts and sacrifices. The second one was what more of what we would call like a pastoral role, right? He sympathized with the people. He met with the people. He counseled the people. And he would often uh, walk with them and let them let the reality of that bridge between God and people be a reality that they experience. So it's just more of this walking with pastoral role. So you have these two jobs that the priest would play, sacrificing and sympathizing. You kinda, that was the, the role that the high priest would play. So the, the, in the sacrifi- sacrificial part of it, they had these systems and rituals to atone for their sin and for the sin of the priest, because the priest was also sinful, and also the sin of the people. These sacrifices were an important part of the, of the ancient Israel's way of life. There were burnt offerings, grain offerings, fellowship offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, and many other offerings. And there was many practices to kind of pay for and atone for sin. Uh, one of them, you may have heard of, if you've ever heard of somebody being called a scapegoat, have you ever, that actually comes from scripture, okay? That there was this practice in ancient Israel. There was two goats. The high priest would take the goats and he would put the sin, ceremonially put the sin of the people on the goats. One would be sacrificed and it was brutal and gross and lots of blood. And all this was a ceremonial of, of sin being paid for by the goat. The other goat, which was the scapegoat, would have the sins put on it, and then it would be sent off into the desert, never to be seen again, right? And this was symbolic of the sins of the people being atoned for and carried far away from the people of God. There's also the the blood of a bull would be sprinkled on the altar as a sign of payment for the sins. And so there's always this question of why did this have to be? Why did this have this frame of reference to help explain Jesus? Why did this have to be the custom, well, God's holiness was, demands that sin be paid for. The purpose of the sacrifices was to underscore the need for atonement. God's holiness demands that sin be paid for. God has a standard. Right? This is the only type of God that is worth even serving. If we serve a God that will let evil happen and just let everybody do whatever they want, you do you, you'll be fine, that ends up not being a God that we want to serve because that God has no authority, that God has no power, that God has no standard. But the God of the Bible has a standard that the people are called to live up to, and he is a holy, just God. And in order to be in relationship with him, you must meet that standard. Or when that standard has been broken, it must have consequences. And the standard of the God of the Bible has been violated, and we serve a just God that must return due consequences for that violation. The God of the Bible is a just God, so he demands atonement. But while God is a just God, he is also a merciful God. Because just as he provides, or just as he demands atonement, he provides the payment. In his grace and his mercy, he provides a way for sin to be atoned for. He didn't leave it up to humanity to make a way so that they could pay for their violation. He provided it. He provided the way out. So when we look at the sacrificial system and we look at the high priest's role in that system, we see that God's holiness and his mercy meet. His holiness, which is required a payment, is met with the mercy that he provided that payment. 
God's holiness and mercy meet in the sacrificial system. And that system was mediated by the priest. We're going to call that sacrifice. That's that role. If you're taking notes, you don't want to write two words down, sacrifice and sympathize. That's the words we're looking at today. So we have the sacrifice, that whole section, that whole role, the ceremonial role of the priest. Then you have the sympathizing role. Right? And this is why we were talking about the pastoral role, looking at the people, sympathizing with them, getting alongside them, making the idea of this bridge a reality in their experience. The priest was human, just like the people he was making sacrifices for. That means the priest knew what it was like to face the realities of life in this broken world. The priest knew the pain of loss, the hurt of broken relationships. He knew the pool of temptation, and he knew the weight of failure. And living through those experiences, the priest would offer comfort, wise advice, and other various means of support for the people. And this was that sympathizing role. So you've got these two words. But the problem is, ultimately, the priests being humans, the animals being creation, the sacrificing and the sympathizing were never really fully able to cover the sins of the people. That their power came from looking forward to a promise that they received in the beginning that one day someone would come that would be able to make the once and for all sacrifice and the once and for all sympathizing for the people. Both roles were fulfilled by Christ when he returns. Hebrews is saying that person that the people were looking forward to, that person is Jesus Christ. He came as the ultimate high priest, and he is able to both sacrifice and sympathize with the people. And we see that in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Tempted, so we see sympathize with our weakness. That one's easy to see, right? That's right there. This is a word we're using. The other one we see, the sacrifice comes with the tempted without sin. Jesus experienced temptation, and therefore when he came not only to make the sacrifice, but he himself became the sacrifice. And he was only able to do that because he was tempted without sin. Sin. So let's look at the Jesus and how he made that sacrifice. Just as in the Old Testament, God provided the atonement by providing the animals. Now we see in Jesus that God has appointed Jesus to play this role. Jesus is God incarnate. And just like the priest was appointed by the Father, Jesus has been appointed by the Father. If you go forward and you read in, in Hebrews 5, the next chapter, verses 4 through 5, say this No one takes the honor on himself. Instead, a person is called by God, just as Aaron was. Aaron was the first high priest, right? In the same way, Christ did not exalt himself to become a high priest, but God who said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. God appoints Jesus, just like the high priest was appointed by God, to play this role of high priest. And by doing that, Jesus becomes the only way to salvation, Five nine says that after he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. This is a beautiful 
point in the way that Jesus gives us our voice back. God, Jesus is God put on flesh. He is human. He knows the reality of temptation and he has experienced it in every way that you have, but he did not give in. That means that when you look at your battle with temptation, you are not alone in that battle. And then when you look at that temptation and you feel like it has so much power over you, you can know that that sin does not have power over you because Jesus faced it and he faced it successfully, not because he was God and had all the power of the world, but because he was human. He was human and he had a human will. So he knew the weight and the strength of any temptation you have experienced. C.S. Lewis, when making this point, actually had somebody write a letter and I was kind of scoffing at it, saying, you know what? If Jesus never never sinned, then he doesn't really know what it's like to be tempted. And C.S. Lewis, I'm going to summarize it instead of giving you the whole letter, right? C.S. Lewis kind of responds it with this way, saying, no, the person who doesn't give in temptation actually knows more fully the power of it. If you've ever battled with temptation, you kind of know this, right? If you get tempted and the second you tempted, you, you give in, you don't really know how powerful that pull would be. But if you've ever resisted, And five minutes later or five hours later, you're still resisting. You know how strong that pull of temptation, how it grows and pulls. And it seems like the more you resist it, the stronger it gets. Now take that pull and multiply it over five days, five years, or even a lifetime in the case of Jesus. He knew temptation more fully than any of us ever will because he never gave in. He felt the weight in that pull of that temptation throughout his whole life. Now, we know, we know the temptation of, in Matthew 4, we see Satan tempt Jesus. So a lot of times when we think about Jesus' reality, we think that's when he was tempted. But Jesus had his human will from birth to death. It didn't leave him. He, didn't just, he wasn't just tempted at that moment with Satan. His whole life, he faced temptation. Now, the Bible doesn't say, and in this moment, Jesus was tempted. But if you know any humans who have battled with any sins, or if you know yourself and you know sins that you have battled with, go read the gospel with that lens. Think about how humans are tempted and look at how Jesus navigates life and look for opportunities where you think he could have been tempted. So this is a little bit of kind of looking into scripture. I want to preface with that. But there are times where I know that if I was Jesus, I would have been tempted. Jesus could have been tempted to lie to save his life. Think about that moment where he's surrounded by soldiers with spears in their hands, nails on the floor, hammers in the corner. He knows the the weight of crucifixion. He knows how humiliating and painful that is. And we know that he knows that that's his future. And then they're at, they ask him, so are you really the son of God? Are you really the king of the Jews? Would you not be tempted to say no in order to save your life? All he had to do was lie in that moment and the reality and the pain of the cross would not have have been something he had to experience. He could have been tempted to steal. We know that Jesus was one of at least five kids and in his house, uh, we see that Joseph kind of falls off the map. If you're reading the story, Mary is talked about throughout all the Gospels, right? She, the, whole, the whole narrative, she's there. But there comes a point where Joseph is just disappears. So we don't have proof of this, but this has led many to conclude that Joseph died early. So there's a strong chance that Jesus knows what it's like to lose a father, his earthly father. 
And in that day and age, when the, uh, the man of the household died, the family was often left desolate. Mary couldn't provide for her five kids at least. Right? So what Jesus being the oldest sibling and the oldest male, the weight then falls on him to provide for the family. You don't think that if, that, if you were in that situation, wouldn't you be tempted to steal or cheat in order to take care of your younger siblings? He could have been tempted to covet. He had nothing. The Bible tells us that he was homeless, nowhere to live, nowhere to lay his head. And even while he had some people who followed him, like Zacchaeus, who were extremely wealthy, there were people who were part of his people, Hebrews, who were tax collectors and did certain things, were able to live in extravagant houses. And Jesus had nothing. You don't think in some of those low moments where he's sleeping out in the wilderness because he has nowhere to live, that he could have been thinking, man, if I just had their house, this would be a little bit easier. Or maybe to take revenge. Think about how people would spread lies about Jesus that weren't true. I, I can remember points in my life where people did this. They were sp- spreading untruths, and it made me so furious. Could, could you imagine Jesus being tempted to take revenge in that moment? Or to lust when Mary leaned down to wipe his feet with her hair? Or to murmur when his friend or his cousin or coworker John the Baptist, was murdered just because at the whim of a dancing girl, that's what she requested the guy do? Or maybe to be gloat, to gloat and be prideful. All the time these Pharisees were coming and they were trying to trap Jesus and they had these uh, loaded questions and Jesus could every time successfully turn that question back on them and just see them squirm. Wouldn't it be easy to gloat and be proud in that moment? Whatever sin you have experienced, whatever temptation, sorry, that you have experienced, Jesus knows that temptation more fully than even you do. Yet, he was without sin. This means that you are not alone. And this means that your sin does not rule you. When you place your faith in Christ, when you place your faith in Jesus, God sends his spirit and fills you up. And you now face that temptation with the power of the Savior of the world. That is your reality because Jesus was the perfect high priest and he paid that sacrifice. He defeated sin. He covered it once and for all. There's no need to continue making perfect, making sacrifices because Jesus was that perfect sacrifice himself and he knows your reality. And that's the sacrifice. But what about the sympathizing? Jesus experienced pain and heartache and the weakness and brokenness of humanity, just like each one of us. If you continue reading on into Hebrews 5, 7, the the author kind of unpacks this a little bit, saying that during his earthly life, Jesus offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reference. Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, that's what this is pointing to, comes to this moment with loud cries and tears. I think sometimes we think about Jesus having that prayer in the garden where he says, Lord, take this cup from me, but yet not my will from yours. We kind of think of Jesus being this perfect, sitting by a little bush in the garden, praying. And we know that when he was praying, he had tears of blood. We know that's there, but we kind of see this grit picture. But that Jesus isn't sitting there quietly, gritting his teeth, trying to power through it. It says he had loud, loud cries, tears. This is a wailing. This is, this is 
dramatic. All right, this is Jesus saying, you know what? I'm not, I can't handle this. This is so difficult. My future, the weight of that is on me. I don't, Lord, take this cup from me. I don't know how I'm going to face it. I got permission to use this, this illustration from Lauren, okay? But there's this moment right before her dad passed away where we get to the hospital. We haven't had much sleep. It's like one in the morning. And she in that moment sees her dad in that state and all the emotions flood back. And she realizes that it's the same thing as when her mom passed. And she's feeling the same weight. She's facing that same difficulty all over again. And she just loses it. She cries at the top of her lungs. I can't do this again. No, why is this happening? There's this moment of despair that as a picture that I can't think of another picture that is equal to what I feel like Jesus is experiencing in the garden, crying out with a loud voice to his father, how can I face this? How can I go forward? Take this cup from me. And it says, the, the scripture says that God heard him because of his reference. And God the Father's answer was, no, I'm not taking this cup from you. Or maybe, maybe it was a yes, because if you pay attention to Jesus' prayer, in the midst of prayer, it kind of transforms. And he says, yet not my will, but yours. This is a sermon for another day, but prayer does that to us. If you spend time talking to God, speaking to him, praying, it's amazing how your very prayer will transform not to your will, but his will. And because of his reverence, God hears that and goes through with the Lord's will. When you are at your loneliness, the most lonely you have ever been, Jesus understands. When you are at rock bottom, Jesus understands. When you are so broken that you don't know up from down or dark from light, Jesus understands. He put on flesh. He knows what it means to be weak. He knows what it means to be broken. He knows what it means to have a longing of the heart that you wish you could change a situation, but you can't. Jesus has been there and he can sympathize with you. He walks with you. He makes the bridge between God and you a reality so that when you lean on him, you know that God is near to you because Jesus was just like that. At the beginning of this passage, we see this phrase that that Jesus, when he died, he passed through the heavens. All right, and there's some, I'm gonna take a moment here that's gonna really confuse you, but we're just gonna briefly touch it, okay? There is this picture of the heavens in scripture that shows that it seems to be layered, okay? Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians that of being caught up into the third heaven, when Solomon built the temple, he declared in 1 Kings 8 that heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain God. So when we look at scripture, we have this impression that within heaven, there are these layers, not layers as in rankings, like the better Christian you are, the higher up you are in heaven, but layers like in the house, there's, there's floors that go up. And it seems like at the most center point of, the, of heaven, the most center point of these layers, there is God the Father. And so this is calling out the the speaking to the ascension of Jesus, saying that when he raised from the dead and he ascended into heaven, he went straight to the throne room of God. He didn't, he didn't lollygag. He didn't you know, stop and talk to Peter for a few minutes. He went straight to the throne room of heaven. 
The point is that Jesus, having died and been raised from the dead, was then exalted in his ascension through all the different layers of heavens, right to the heart, right to the throne room of the Father. He didn't rest on his laurels. He didn't prop his feet up and say, look what I did. I finally arrived. No, Jesus went to heaven and went to work. He goes right to the center to represent us. N.T. Wright says it like this. He went right to the Father's inner courtroom in order that by representing us there, by interceding with us, the Father might continue with, with the Father, that he might continue to implement the work that he accomplished on earth. This echoes Romans 8, 34 that says, who is, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more, he has been raised and he is also at the right hand of God interceding for us. Jesus goes to the Father. He is interceding for you right now. He is seeking for your betterment. He knows where you are weak. He knows where you are tempted. And he is going to the Father, praying for your strength, giving you your voice back. We see it in the last part, the last verse of, of uh, our passage today. In verse 16, it says, therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. There's your voice. Your agency has been given back to you so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. The whole point of Jesus being the high priest goes back to where we opened up the message this morning. It gives you agency. It gives you your voice back. I'm not an expert in trauma, okay? But I have done I have dabbled in reading about the field because I feel like as a pastor, people are going to experience trauma. I need to be somewhat educated on how to respond and listen and get them connected to an expert. I'm not an expert. I'm not going to help you deal with trauma, but I will help you get you connected, okay? But there's this sense of I want to be informed. So I've done some reading, and there's lots of debate over how you help and treat certain individuals with certain cases, but there's one thing that is a common thread through all of it, and that is agency, that is giving the victim a voice, allowing them to be heard and believed, giving them a power back. Bessel van der Kolk, if I've said that right, was uh, one of the leading physicians to recognize and treat what we now know as post-traumatic stress disorder, right? PTSD. And he wrote a popular level book called The, Bi- the Body Keeps the Score. The, in the book, he highlights that trauma of any kind whether it be even if it's entirely psychological, can and will have severe, long-lasting physical consequences. For real change to take place, the body needs to learn that the danger has passed and to live in reality of the present. That's his words. So he's saying that the mind and the body are beautifully woven together. And in light of the passage that we've studied today, this should not surprise us. Jesus came as a real human with a real body. He was a perfect sacrifice to heal and redeem our human bodies. When we worship Jesus, we are worshiping the incarnate Lord, one who came like us. He's not some disembodied spirit, but fully human, a fully human person like us in every way, but without sin. And at the, end of the time, at the end of time, when Jesus returns, we're not going to be in heaven as disembodied spirits floating around the clouds. No, we will once and finally be fully human and resurrected bodies. The point is this, that our physicality matters. In the end, mind, body, and soul will be reunited and redeemed and fully healed. So... The point of this is saying that if one of those is damaged, like the mind, it's no surprise that all can suffer. 
Vander Kolk says this, among trauma's most harmful consequences is the loss of agency. Trauma robs you of the feeling that you are in charge of yourself. The restoration of agency is thus part and parcel to healing, which demands that the survivor reestablish ownership of their body and their mind. A big part of why I'm Wesleyan and why we started a Wesleyan church is because in our tradition, we believe that grace enables our response to God's initiative. So this is, this is get more into this next week. We talk about apostasy, but see, God, God initiates the work. Without him, we can't know him. But in that process, he sends his spirit and frees our will and gives us a voice to either choose him or not choose him. So the best that I can tell, Vander Kolk is not a believer, but I am in agreement with him when, he, when I say that agency and healing are connected. Just like in Zamperini's story, agency and healing are connected. And Jesus put on flesh, he sympathizes and he sacrificed for our atonement, he put and for our sin. He then goes and becomes an advocate to the Father and gives us our voice back. He gives you your voice back. He gives you the power to overcome temptation. He gives you your freedom. No. So if you think about kings, I'm closing with this, okay? When you think about kings and how they ruled their kingdom, they had this incredible power, right? And if you approach the king unannounced, you would end up dead, right? If you approach the king and you even aggravated the king, chances are you would end up dead, right? So if you think, if you need to approach the king at three in the morning and you show up unannounced, boom, it's over for you, all right? So Tim Keller, the late Tim Keller once said this, the only person who would dare wake up the king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is his child. The only person who would dare wake up the king at 3 a.m. for simply a glass of water would be the one who knows that the king is father. And you have that access. We as believers have that access because Jesus is the king and he is interceding with the father on our behalf. So if you just need a glass of water at 3 a.m., guess what? You get to approach the king. You have that agency. You have that power. You have that strength because it has been given to you by Jesus. You have, it's not even your power. Even though you feel like you can't handle it, bro, it's not your power. It's his. Those were the words spoken to me and those are the words I'm speaking to you now. You have the power of the one who is able to sympathize with your weakness. You have the power of the one who was tempted in every way but did not give in. You have the power of the one who is advocating on you with the, for you with the Father. Namely, you have the power of King Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth who came to save the world and paid the price for your sins. You have a voice. You have agency. You are not alone You can overcome sin. You can overcome temptation because Jesus has overcome sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you don't leave us alone in this battle. I pray that this passage would come alive to us, that whatever it is that we are tempted with, whatever battle it is that we face, no matter how low that we feel, that we can lean on this passage and that we can lean on Jesus I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move in our hearts this week, that we will know the reality of your presence within us. Give us the strength and the courage we need to face whatever difficulty that lies before us. Give us the boldness and the confidence we need 
to approach you so we can receive help in our time of need. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.